Welcome back, my friends. Air, land, and sea. Wherever you turn, you can envision in your mind's eye the presence of Hashem. This is a faith-based perspective. But then again, aren't we people of faith? I'm going to have to make the assumption that if you're watching or planning to participate, it's because you want to experience the ideal of full trust in Hashem. You want to be able to take the faith you have in Hashem, which, re which remains somewhat atmospheric, and you want to bring it into your everyday reality. You want to, you want to actualize it. You want it to become the thing that fuels your passions, that calms your anxieties, and it gives you a sense of, of mission, a sense of purpose, and a sense of certainty and security. So if you're looking for those things, if you believe in God and desperately want that faith to impact you, please stay with us on this journey. As we fly through the air, swim in the deep seas, and burrow our way into the ground to discover some very profound truisms that can, and with Hashem's help, will change our lives. This is episode 24. In the previous episode, we talked about the alchemist. We're still focused on him. 11th century Spain, pardon me, yes, 11th century Spain, the great Rabbeinu Bachaya is developing in literary fashion for the very first time an exhaustive manual on trust. It's part of a larger book that he authors called Chayvas Halavavais, The Obligations of Our Heart the kind of emotional equilibrium and spiritual well-being that every one of us is expected to attain. The feelings we're supposed to nurture, the connections that we're supposed to have. One gate is called trust. Shara betochen. And that's what we're studying now. And in order to demonstrate the power, the profundity of betochen, of trust, Rabbeinu Bechaya selected a euphemism, a parable of his time. You can cut and paste the equivalent in any time. So in 11th century Spain, it's the alchemist, the person who can turn 
just about anything into gold. And in our previous episode, we talked about the worries, the anxieties, the concerns that that person might live with, despite the fact that he's got it made in the shade, despite the fact that he lives the easiest life you could possibly imagine. He's never missing any sustenance. You need money, you print some more. I mean, you make some gold. No issue. And yet, Rabbeinu Bechaya highlighted the anxieties that would necessarily follow this fellow. It's not hard to extrapolate from that metaphor, from that paradigm, into our day and age, or any day and age. And the anxieties will follow you. They'll fit perfectly into any paradigm you develop. Conversely, the author tells us, the person of faith and trust will live a life that is free of worry, concern, and anxiety. Why? Well, because the anxieties and concerns we highlighted about the uncertainty of the future and the unforeseen possibilities that might come your way for the person of trust in Hashem, he's relying on God. And God is omnipotent. So he worries not about these eventualities, but instead focuses on what does Hashem, God, expect of me now? And those are the things I have to be concerned with. Am I living the kind of life that my Creator wants me to? Am I satisfying the obligations, the duties, the responsibilities that HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the Holy One Blessed He, gave me personally? That's my concern. As to how will I be sustained? I do my part. Hashem does His part. No worries, no anxieties, no concern, absolute peace of mind, perfect inner tranquility. So let's move forward. If you're following along in the, the new version, or I should say the new translation of Shara Betochen, we're still in the psicha, still in the introduction. And at this point, we would be on page... 18, moving on to page 19. So in the aforementioned scenarios, the alchemist, he's worried. Who knows? He may be left penniless. He's afraid that whatever gold and silver he has amassed can be seized or stolen from him. And or he is afraid that he will be potentially left with nothing and not have the raw materials necessary for him to perform his alchemy. However, says Rabbeinu Bechayim, the person who trusts in Hashem, who relies on God, his security, his trust is very strong. What does he trust? Trust God. He trusts that God that God will sustain or provide for him according to God's will. You won't be sustained according to your will. If you decided that you need lavish or luxurious elements in your lifestyle, 
you can be sure or certain of nothing. Hashem is not required to provide you with luxury. He never promised. He never committed to giving you luxury. But HaKadosh Baruch Hu is Zon Umefarnas. He provides, He sustains. And invariably, most of us have much more than we need and much more than we deserve. But Hashem is good. So the person who trusts in Hashem implicitly, who places his confidence in God, he's got no worries. Hashem will give him, as per the will of God, Be'et Shein Yirzah, in the place that he will want, the time he will want, pardon me, Uvumakim Shein Among God's timing and location will be God's choosing. He will provide for me. Exactly how, where, and when, that I put in Hashem's hands. This doesn't mean you sit back, relax, and enjoy, and wait for the money to rain down from heaven. You do what you must. You do what natural means require. You find yourself a, a decent vocation. That's reasonable to expect a person to be able to sustain themselves with it. You work diligently, wisely, devotedly, honestly. And you know that your efforts may bring you zero. You know that. Because so often people have toiled, slaved away, and come home empty-handed. And others have not worked that hard, and somehow fortune has favored them. Everything seems to work. But my dear friends, the truth is that all of it is on God's clock. It's by virtue of His timing in the manner that Hashem will decide, and we have zero control over that. What I do have control over is how I behave. What I am expected to exert restraint over is how I react. And Torah Emet, our Torah teachings of truth, necessitate the notion of working to make a living. Uveirachta, Hashem will bless us, Hashem alikecha, b'chol as we've mentioned previously. The verse states, God will bless you in all that you do. So you're required to do. Your activities may in fact not result in the parnasa that you seek. And therefore you don't put too much credibility. You don't put too much emphasis. You do what must be done and you don't worry. You don't have anxiety. Why be concerned? What if it won't work? Okay, so then Hashem is going to choose to give you your parnasa in a different manner. You did your part, you leave the rest in God's hands. That's the way a person with trust functions. And so Rabbeinu Bechayah says, if that's how you function, you'll function with no anxiety. You'll have a worry-free life. I have strong certainty. I trust, I rely. Be'elikim in God, she'yatifaisi. It's interesting that he uses the name Elikim, which is the name of judgment. The God that gives me and meets out exactly as much as I need. 
what I will need, I will get. And it'll be on God's timing. As his will. When he will want. Here, Rabbeinu Bechaya begins to richly illustrate the point that he's making. And I want to tell you that when I first started to prepare this, I found it very difficult. It sounds like gross oversimplification or pointless hyperbole. Rabbeinu Bechaya starts like going in circles over here. He's giving us these uh, poetic references that don't even seem to make sense. I know that many teach Shara B'tochen. They move through it quickly. Just tell you what it says, and it, it kind of makes sense. So let me tell you what it says. <laughs> let me tell you how most tend to make sense of it and why that doesn't make sense to me. Not because I want to tell you what doesn't make sense to me, because I want to share with you what I believe is the deeper and proper understanding. So it goes like this. Rabbeinu Bachaya says, Kasha Does God not provide for the fetus? What efforts did the fetus make? No efforts. Okay, so God provides for the fetus. The egg or embryo inside the egg. He gets fed. I mean, he's alive. He gets born eventually. The chick has to be eating something. It has no hole, so to speak. No entry point. You can't get in to feed the baby. You can't get through the egg to feed the chick. There's no way, no entry point. You can't bring anything into that reality. And yet, somehow they get sustained just fine. So if they get sustained, you get sustained. Huh? Really? Well, because an, an egg turns out to be a chick, and because a baby is born, therefore I'll be sustained? Really? Like, like, what does that mean exactly? What does that mean that there's no way to, to bring nutrients to the baby or the chick? We know how this happens. I mean, it's not, it's not rocket science. I very much doubt that Rabbeinu Bachaya was a man with incredible wisdom and sapience, didn't understand that the baby that grows inside his mother's womb is not doing so by magic. And that the egg is not some kind of miraculous arrival of a chick where God is sending little bits of food through the eggshell, but nobody notices. And then he goes all over the place. First, take off. Let's fly into the sky. The birds in the sky. Oh, that's good. I didn't know that. And the fish that they're in the sea. And then, I don't know why he brings the worm in here in this translation, but it says the mullah. And the little worm, with all of its weakness. It's actually not so weak, but we'll get into that in a minute. And yet, despite the fact that the fetus and the embryo are sustained, despite the fact that we have a bird in the sky, a fish in the sea, and an ant in the ground, and yet the lion sometimes is hungry tonight. With all his might, on occasion, and here he goes to a verse that he's quoted already previously, and he's quoting it yet again. Young lions are impoverished and they hunger. 
V'dersh Hashem, but those who seek a godly achzer chaltev, they miss no good. And then he says, Ve'omar, if that's not good enough for you, there's a verse in the Proverbs, in the 10th chapter of Mishlei, it says, La'yariv Hashem nefshat God doesn't make the righteous starve. And if that's not good enough, go back to the book of Psalms, and there it says, Nar ha'iti gamzakanti, I was young, now I'm old. And velora iti tzadik nezav, I never saw a righteous person neglected, abandoned. Zarum avakish lochem. His progeny, his children seeking food, never saw such a thing. <laughs> okay, like, what, is, what does this mean? Really? Land, air, sea, birds, fish, ants, embryos, fetuses. But lions are hungry. I, it, I don't know, it's just not talking to me. I'm like, I don't understand. What? If Rabbeinu Bechaya would not have written all of those things, he just would have left us with the first line. He said, here's a person, he's got lots of anxieties. Why? His future is uncertain. There are unforeseen realities, and he doesn't know how he's going to deal with it. So he doesn't know to have more material, but then maybe it'll be stolen from him. Have less material, maybe he won't have the material when he needs it. With various other reasons, he's, he's a loner, he doesn't have the ability to get advice, he's afraid that people will discover a secret. Okay, and the one who trusts in God, he has strong faith, he relies on Hashem that God will provide for him in his timing, in his location, wherever God deems it appropriate. Okay, that's all. If whatever Baha'i wouldn't give this, this whole poetry over here, he wouldn't take us on this, on this air, sea, and land trip. And he wouldn't introduce us to fish and ants, to, to lions. And to and to and to and to, and to, uh, and to birds. And so, well, like we wouldn't understand this. Who 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 is helped with this metaphor? This is like so basic, so pedestrian, so elementary. R- really, on the surface, it seems like he's just like waxing poetically for no good reason. Because this is not a book of poetry. This is a book of knowledge. This is a book of. Rabbeinu B'chaya is establishing the basic principles and the working manual of how to achieve trust. So some will say to you, well, you know, that's how it is. He flowers it up a little. He tosses you some uh, metaphors, some parables, some verbiage. And he garnishes it with a little bit of uh, a couple of verses here and a couple of verses there. Same verses he said before. Whatever. It's just like, you know, like a, just keep going. All right. I, don't, I, I can't do that. I, I, give, um, I give the words of Rabbeinu Bachaya far more credibility. And, and if he said something, he said what he meant and he meant what he said. This is one of the greatest minds of medieval, ta- medieval times. One of the greatest Rishonim. And a very holy man, a very pious person, he didn't play games. There's something that he's telling us. The question, of course, is what? And the answer is, I'm going to tell you what I think. I don't know anything I'm going to share with you now to be factual, but I'm going to try to give you some perspective. And I'm going to try to share with you what I discovered myself as I search desperately for pshat, for the meaning of these words. So let's take it from the top. The top is Rabbeinu Bechaya says, Kasha In the same way that a baby is kept alive during pregnancy. Well, 
Here are the scientific facts. And I'm pretty sure Rabbeinu Bechaya was aware of this, although he may not have had, have had the same sophistication that's available today. There's a placenta in every pregnancy. It's crucial to keeping your baby alive during the pregnancy. It's an actual organ, an added, a new organ that the woman's body grows. It attaches itself to the lining of the womb and it delivers oxygen and nutrients to the growing baby. Really plain and simple. The placenta attaches itself to the wall of the uterus. I think it starts on the bottom and then kind of slowly moves its way to the top of the uterus where it implants itself. And the umbilical cord is what connects the placenta to your baby. And the woman who is pregnant, her body feeds into the placenta and the placenta feeds into the baby by virtue of the umbilical cord. So blood or plasma passes from the mother through the placenta. The placenta filters oxygen, glucose, and a host of other nutrients that enable the baby to live and to grow. And all of that comes via the umbilical cord. The placenta also filters out substances that could be harmful to the baby. And it removes the carbon dioxide and the waste products from the baby's blood. So there isn't actual consumption per se. The baby's bloodstream is being nourished directly. The baby isn't drawing a breath. It has his lungs aren't working yet. He's not digesting anything. The stomach isn't working yet. It's actually astounding. This, the placenta, is feeding directly into the baby's bloodstream. So who's doing all the, the heavy lifting, the, the, the digesting, forgive me, or the bringing in of the oxi oxidization that's happening through the mother's lungs? She's breathing for two people now. She's eating for two people now. The placenta also produces a number of hormones, and as I don't know if Rabbeinu Bechai knew about hormones. These are hormones that are needed for the baby during the pregnancy. It also has this very, very remarkable way of separating the mother's blood from the baby's blood. And in this way, keeping the blood separate, it's able to protect the baby from infection. So if the mother, God forbid, gets ill, it doesn't mean the baby is necessarily going to get ill. Apparently, towards the end of the pregnancy, the placenta also passes on antibodies to protect the baby after birth. Oh, right, it's all an accident. It's just like, you know, evolved by mistake. You're kidding, right? <laughs> like, it's unbelievable. It's actually unbelievable. All designed by Hashem. And this thing takes place billions of times. Probably a day around the world. Now, if the placenta, God forbid, peels away from the inner wall of the uterus before delivery, either partially or completely, we have a big problem. Doctors will call this placental abruption and that can deprive the baby of oxygen and of nutrients. And we have an issue. So, Rabbeinu Bechaya, um, what would you like to know about the baby being sustained inside the womb 
even though we can't burrow our way in there and feed the baby. The Ben Bachai didn't know that there's something that sustains the baby, that the mother is actually eating and breathing for the baby and that placenta is passing it along. What's his point? What is his point in saying there's no mocking the foolish, there's no opening, you can't really get to it, you can't enter it, and yet Hashem sustains it. <laughs> oh, and the Ephraim, the chick. How does the chick get fed? Nobody brings feed into the egg. Well, it's actually a lot less sophisticated than the placenta in a pregnancy. The egg is fairly simple. The chicken embryo inside the egg develops physically after the nutrients, uh, pardon me, after the egg has been laid. What happens is that the embryo feeds on the yolk of the egg. The yolk of the egg provides plenty of nutrition to the developing chick. The yolk fully sustains the chick until it's ready to hatch. So what does Rabbeinu Bachai mean when he says, and the chicken or the bird embryo, can't get in there, can't bring any bird feed in. Rabbi, it's very simple. There's a, it's feeding off the yolk. Everybody knows what an egg looks like. What's the big deal? My dear friends, the point is this. If you believe that Hashem created the world and its fullness, and I do, and if you believe that there is, how shall I put this, a logic to creation, a certain, you're going to be walking right in front of the camera, Larry, and a certain, and there's a, a certain level of nourishment, so to speak, that Hashem provides or sustains creation with, which I believe all those things. So if I believe that Hashem is sustaining, that Hashem is providing, just as Hashem chooses to find a way to provide the fetus with all of the nutrients it needs, and just in the way that Hashem chooses to provide the chick or bird embryo with yolk and all of its needs, wouldn't it make sense that Hashem would design a world that could sustain itself? I mean, if the world is an accident, if the world evolved by mistake, I, I, you know, look, what am I going to tell you? I can't help you, as they say. This is a moot conversation. The purpose of this particular series of classes is not to convince you that there is a God. This is not a series on belief. This is not a series on knowing God, per se. This is a series on living with trust or learning to live with trust. This is how to live with certainty. So if you believe that Hashem created the world, and I do, you should too. In the same way God created a fetus, along with the possibility of its sustenance, it was already from the beginning. Hashem put it all in there. As the baby was conceived and as the baby starts to grow, so does the placenta. And Hashem connects the two. And everything just happens to work out most of the time. 
the baby grows, the placenta grows. The mother eats, the baby is fed. The egg just has to be kept warm. As long as it's a fertilized egg, a fertilized embryo, as long as it's warm, either for the mother sitting on it or in an incubator, as long as it's warm, it continues to consume the yolk. And at some point, it consumes the entire yolk of the egg. And when it's got no more food, it makes his grand exit. He comes out of the shell, so to speak, breaks out of the shell, because there's no reason to stay in the shell anymore. And Hashem arranges it that every bird lays an egg with precisely enough yolk to sustain the embryo until it's ready to be born. Is there a symmetry, a logic, or that's all an accident? So, Kulam B'chachma Asisa, we say, on a very literal level, God made a very brilliant, an amazingly brilliant world where everything is perfectly interacting. And because everything is perfectly interacting and works or functions with perfect synchronicity, He provides for the child, for the fetus, so that the fetus can grow and turn into a human being, so that it can be born and it's even been given the antibodies to fight off infections after. He provides enough yolk in the egg so that the egg, the bird, can eat as much as it needs until it's ready to emerge into the outside world. It just has to be kept warm. There's a symmetry to that. There's a logic. From the birth of a mammal to the birth of that which hatches or comes from an egg. One baby grows inside the womb of its host mother. The other is expelled immediately in a hard shell. And both are able to be sustained. It doesn't require any engineering. Nobody has to come and give it sustenance. Hashem gives it sustenance. I believe Rabbeinu B'chai's point is this. In the same way that Hashem arranged for the baby to be sustained, in the same way he sustains the bird, Hashem sustains you and I. The world has never gone bankrupt, you know. The world just didn't implode. Billions of people. Almighty God sustains. He sustains all of the ecology, all of the ecosystems. He sustains all life from tiny little insects to enormous bears and rhinoceroses. All of this is being sustained by God and over with perfect balance and perfect symmetry. What should that say to you? As a person of faith, it should say to you that God built a perfect world that has perfect balance and that God Himself sees to it that all life is sustained. You open your hand, a euphemism, an anthropomorphism, obviously. Hashem provides for all living things. Rabbeinu B'chayah's point then is that regardless, regardless of whether or not you see 
or don't see how God is sustaining the world, God is in fact sustaining the world on a regular basis. This is a, a frame, a paradigm. And that's really what it says inside. He says, Hashem will sustain you. Yatrif Oisai will sustain you. As per His will, you're not in control. Oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to build, I'm going to make, I'm going to get. Really? No, no. You will make the efforts. You will create the vessels, the envelopes, the conventions, the pipeline, the wire, wireless system that can contain the surge of energy. The surge of energy, the sustenance itself that will come from the Rabbeinu Shalalam, that will come from Almighty God Himself. All you are doing is creating the plumbing system. You're just building the network so that when it goes live, you're able to receive. And Hashem can choose to use the network you created, or He can choose to use an alternate network. He told you to go to work and be diligent about it and be honest. You did that. That's nice. And today Hashem decided that all the efforts you made in that particular vocation and business should amount to nothing. A waste of time. A colossal waste of time. Uh-oh. How will I be sustained? Hashem will sustain you as He pleases. All of a sudden, something you did 10 years ago just came back to life. Has it never happened to a business person that the things he did today resulted in zero or even a loss and something he once did and forgot about suddenly comes back to life out of nowhere? Or how many times has Hashem found ways to sustain people utilizing a system they never built? So you're going to ask me, so why should I go to work? Why knock myself out if anyway Hashem is taking care of this? He doesn't need an opening to, so to speak, go in and give it. He has his ways. And the answer is because that's what Torah tells you to do. All of it is an act of faith. For us, the paradigm of sustenance, we have already established this. The paradigm for Jewish people of sustenance is the manna. You need to go out and collect it. When I go to work, I'm collecting the manna. The sustenance is a blessing from God. And that's how God built His world. With perfect symmetry. It's a perfect system. Hashem designed everything exactly as it must be. He designed a body, a female body, with a womb, with a uterus, with a placenta. He designed the birds, they lay eggs, and the eggs happen to have yolks in it. He designed the whole world. So he sustains everything. And now Rabbeinu Bechaya goes on and continues to develop this idea. He says, the ha'oif. So let's move from the things which are, if you will, in a closed capsule. Like the baby in the fetus. Oh, pardon me, the fetus of the baby in the womb. Where there is food coming in, but it's through the mother. Or the egg, nothing's coming in. It's already been placed. The egg was born, so to speak. The egg was laid together with the embryo and the yolk. So let's talk about, let's talk about life. Wildlife. Animals. How do they get sustained? 
So Rabbeinu Bechayah says, okay, let's talk about the birds. Ha'oif ba'avir. The birds in the sky. Why is he talking about the birds? Because, says the Toiv Halavanan, the oif, the bird, finds himself separated from the place or the source of his sustenance. Ha'oif ba'avir makoim reik mimizonot. Have you hear the expression? You, you can't live on thin air? What does the bird live from? He's in the sky. He's flying in the sky. There's nothing to eat flying in the sky. If the bird flies with his mouth open, he's not going to be sustained. Insects are not going to fly inside him. Or as the Toiv Halavonin puts it, another commentary, pardon me, the Manoya Halavavis, another one of the commentaries on Rabbeinu B'chai, he says, Ha'oif, sorry, I'm going to take it to the Paslechem first. Paslechem is like this. Ha'oif, the bird, im she'iker heyois, she'im heyois, iker mishkane ba'avir, even though if somebody says, where are the birds? Where's the primary place of the birds? Where do you expect to find the birds? Where's the habitat of the birds? The answer is the birds are in the sky. So the bird doesn't live on the ground, the bird lives in the sky. Yes, sometimes it comes to rest, but oftentimes it glides or flies, the bird is in the sky. So the bird in the sky, a nan and murgulbaretz, he's not, so to speak, a land creature. And yet, he visits earth uh, to get some worms that he pulls out of the ground. So the bird primarily is in the atmosphere or environment that can sustain it. And somehow it finds sustenance. Not some birds find sustenance. You know, the smart birds, the capable birds, the hardworking birds, all the birds. As a rule, birds find sustenance. We don't know of loser birds, birds who can't figure life out, homeless birds, hard luck birds, Birds figure it out. <laughs> but if you think about it, the bird's not living in his source of sustenance. He's not like the PIG living, so to speak, in the pig's sty where he's eating, his food is readily available. The birds are all in good shape, you know, they're, they're on the move. So the, the, that's exactly the Menoyach Halavavis says, Shot Ba'avir. It flies in the sky. That's where it is. And some of the birds flying in the sky are predatory birds. So they have to pick out another bird, sometimes flying in midair. And then there are comorants, other birds who dive deep into the sea. You can, you can see some National Geographic like movies of it. It's unbelievable. How the fish are in the sea and this comorant from, from hundreds of yards in the sky spots a fish and is able to zoom in like an Apache helicopter and pulls out that little fish. I mean, it's, it's astounding. It's astounding. So the bird's in the sky, and he knows how to get his food. And he figures it out. Lirai shotim ba'avir, flying in the skies. Lirai smirachik ba'aretz machalom, to find their food from a distance. Most birds don't sit and peck on the ground until they find 
their feed. They zoom into their feed in a remarkably sophisticated way. So, Vehine, he says, So, how do they find their food? Or where do they find their food from? A very unlikely place. A place where there is no food. They identify their source of sustenance from the sky where no sustenance exists. And then they swoop in and get what they need. His point, of course, is it is not easy to see how the bird sustains itself. You don't, you don't kind of like necessarily always put the pieces together and say, oh, it makes perfect sense. It's perfectly logical that the bird would sustain itself. Or, hadogim bamayim. The fish live in water. They can't eat water. So, the fish who live in water but can't eat water, in the end, they have to, they got to live. They find their food. Some fish eat other fish. Some fish eat algae or other forms of feed that's found in the bottom of the sea. Their natural habitat, they're not living, so to speak, at the kitchen table. They're swimming through the seas. They find their food. They look for the food. They encounter their food. It's not right in front of them. And then he says, The tiny ant, with its seeming weakness. I'm adding the word seeming. I'll tell you why I'm adding the word seeming. Because I'm not an antibiologist or whatever you would call people who study ants. But I did decide to do a little bit of research on ants when I came across these words. And I found out that ants actually have superhuman strength. I'm not joking. <laughs> ants are ridiculously strong. They have the ability to carry between 10 and 50 times their own body weight. The amount that an ant can carry will depend on its species. There's an ant called the Asian weaver that can, for example, lift a hundred times its own mass. A hundred times its mass. No person can lift a hundred times his mass. Not the biggest bodybuilder. Not the strongest athlete. I don't believe people can even lift ten times. Forget about fifty times their weight. So why are ants so strong? That's actually a good question. The, uh, the answer, quite fascinatingly, is because of their small size. Basically, it seems that the, because of the tiny size of the ant, its muscles have a greater cross-sectional area relative to the body size compared to larger animals. I have no idea what I just said, by the way, but that's, that's what I googled. That's what apparently the Arizona State University reported. And because of that, because the muscles have a greater cross-sectional area, I suppose that means the muscles aren't specific to one part of the body, but it's like one muscle. And because it's like one muscle or it crosses the entire body of the animal or the ant, so they're able to, they're able to do much more than other animals or living things can. They can basically produce significantly more force. 
I don't claim to fully understand this. The bottom line is this. Ants are anything but weak. They don't, they don't, um, they're not weak. They're not weak creatures. They're very strong creatures. They, they don't have lungs. They don't even have room to accommodate a complex respiratory system. They just have this fascinating ways of respiration and that transports oxygen into their bodies. Yes, believe it or not. They, they breathe in spiracles, like these holes that are located in the sides of the ant, and they have a network of tubes. The air comes in from their sides, and they are able to oxidize uh, every cell of their body that way. The more the ant moves, like a person exercising, I guess, so that helps the oxygen circulate, and that's, um, that's, that's how ants survive. They release the carbon dioxide through the very, very same tubes. There are a lot of ants. <laughs> they are not weak creatures. In fact, there are, according to the experts, approximately a hundred million ants for every human on the planet. And as one fellow wrote, ants have pretty much, and I'm quoting, conquered the globe, with the exception of Antarctica, the Arctic, and a handful of islands. There is at least one native species of ant found on every continent. An etymologist named Ted Schultz said that the ant presence across the world is arguably the greatest success story in the history of terrestrial metazoa. Wow. So ants are really strong. <laughs> okay. So ants are really strong. But here he calls them imchalishusa. So the Nether Bekedesh says, I don't know if they're strong or if they're weak. They, to us, they look weak. Relatively speaking, they have a lot of strength. But to us, they seem like tiny creatures. You could step on them. You step on ants. You can't step on mice. You squash them. The tiniest little creature. And yet, despite the fact that they seem so weak to us, they seem so puny, they seem so insignificant, and here the Nehda Bekredish sends us off to the ninth chapter of the book called Nehemiah. In the sixth verse it says, Va'ata mechayes kulam, you God give life or sustain them all. And the point that's being made is, each of these creatures, if you would look at this logically and say, what do you think the chances are for survival? Rabbeinu Bechaya chose the ant of all the little creatures. I don't know if he knew what we know today, but he had a sense that the ant was a lot more successful than any of us imagine. If you had to guess which species of life could outlive just about any issue or problem, you'd probably think it's the ant. How does the ant eat? How do they function? Ants are basically omnivorous. They eat everything. They feed on the milk of aphids, which are tiny little bugs that they farm or other such insects. They eat living or dead uh, uh, creatures. They, they eat the sap of plants. They eat fruits. They eat insect eggs. And yes, when they come to our homes, they add all kinds of things to their menu, <laughs> like bread and cake, like meat and fish, protein and fats and oil. And, and they just, they manage to survive. 
somehow the ants survive. You say, well, it's so tiny, it doesn't take much to feed them. Yeah, but it takes like there's octillions of ants and somehow they're all being fed. And they have to look for their food. So I was thinking about this. Did you ever see a, a fat baby? I mean, I know all babies are fat, but a baby that's overweight? I don't think there is such a thing. I think, I think there are large babies, big babies, bigger bodies, smaller bodies. That probably has something to do with their genetics. But there are no overweight babies, no out-of-shape babies, babies who get winded. You ever see an overweight chick? <laughs> a bird that pops out of the shell, and it's a, a fat bird? Of course not. Hashem sustains everything with exactly what it needs. Not what it wants, what it needs. Birds are generally in very good shape. In fact, the notion of a bird being sick is it's a rarity. We, in halacha, we're very concerned with animals because animals eat all kinds of things and they can cause themselves to become very unhealthy. We have to check the animal after it's ritually slaughtered to make sure that it wasn't sick or already in the process of dying. But birds hardly ever have trefa. The birds generally don't overeat. The problem these days is that they're force-feeding chickens. And that's another whole subject. I don't want to go there. Many will claim that this is downright cruelty to animals. That the animals that are being, the chickens being raised in these chicken farms are actually extremely unhealthy. And that some of them can't even stand on their own two feet because they're being force-fed, overfed, so that the companies can produce fatter chickens and charge the consumer more money and feed more people. So cost, there's a cost that comes with the processing of each chicken. It's much cheaper to feed a chicken and grow him twice the size and then sell the volume of that chicken because it's only one chicken to process. Whereas if you have two lean chickens, it's twice the amount of money to process and there's a much smaller profit. And the market will only bear so much for a pound of chicken. So we are seeing unhealthy birds today. And there are some Rabbanim who are claiming that we have problems with the birds today that we didn't have once upon a time. There's something called Tzema Sagidin, a certain um, sinew, or, or um, I forget the precise English word for it, in the actual chicken feet, which can become compromised today. And this is a, sh a shaila question of, of its being kosher or not. But if birds left to their own devices, I'm not talking about birds being force-fed by humans. Birds left to their own devices. They find the food they need. They don't get fat. They don't become obese. They don't eat in an unhealthy way. They get hungry. They eat. And that's the end. I was once told that even small infants don't eat more than they need to. They push away. The mother breastfeeds, they push away. Sometimes they just want to be comforted. That's another story. But as a rule, when the baby's full, pushes away. It 
consumes tiny, a tiny amount of milk. It pushes away. It's full. It knows when it's full. The notion of indulgence, overeating, only comes later on in life. Looking for things that are sweetened, things that taste delicious and are almost always unhealthy, things that don't taste so good but they're healthy, we don't like. All of this comes from the choices, the bad choices that people make. So the bird, he's got what he needs. I don't think there are fat fish either. The fish eat what they must. The ants seem to be in great shape. <laughs> and when they get hungry, the queen ant eats the rest of the ants, but that's another story. The ants eat, they find the food they need, and they eat. And the ants, by the way, are, are um, anything but greedy. One of the most fascinating things I learned in my little bit of research is that ants have two stomachs, but not because they're greedy. One stomach is for holding food for their own consumption, and the second one is to hold food to be shared with other ants. Imagine that. Imagine eating for somebody else. I mean, maybe a mother, a nursing mother might do that, but eating in a selfless way. It actually stores the food in its body. I mean, an ant is not a tzaddik. It doesn't, it does, it's, it's all by instinct or nature. But isn't that amazing? So Hashem provides for all these creatures exactly what they need. And here, Rabbeinu Bahaya says, however, it is possible that the sustenance would be withheld from the lion. With all of its might, with all of its natural strength, wherewithal and ability. Doesn't mean always. Oh, as a rule, lions take care of themselves very well. However, sometimes lions go hungry. Really? How do you know? What are you, a, a lionologist? Oh, I don't have to be there. I don't have to study lions to know. Because the scripture observes reality or presents us with a picture of reality and it makes a point. It says, Kfirim Roshu Vuraevu. We've talked about this verse, but this time we're speaking about it in a slightly different fashion. Abena Bahai is not just quoting cute verses because he likes them. Kfirim Roshu Vuraevu. Kfirim are small lions, young lions. They have lots of ambition. In fact, most of the commentaries read this verse as Kfirim Roshu Vuraevu. According to most of the commentaries, it refers to people who are ambitious and aggressive and maybe violent too when they want to get their prey or sink their teeth into something. The only Mephirish that actually I found that insists that we read this quite literally is Rabbeinu David Kimchi Radak. He says, no, no, read it literally. It's not a metaphor. Kfirim, sheyesh lahem gvura. They've got might. They're agile. They're quick. They're not big fat cats. They're extremely young, good shape. They have everything it takes to go on the hunt. And yet, they have gvura, bebakasha tirpa. They have strength, they have wherewithal, they have ability, might, enable, enabling them to pursue their prey. And pa'omim, roshu 
Sometimes they're lacking, impoverished, starving, hungry. All of their might doesn't help. In other words, if uh, somebody were to tell you, so how do lions eat? How do lions provide? So what do you do? Lions. lions are strong. They're mighty. They're hunters. That's how they provide for themselves. You think a lion would go hungry? You've got to be kidding. Why would a lion go hungry? He just goes to hunt. He doesn't need to prepare his weapons, his tools. He's got his fangs. He's got his claws. He's got his muscles. He hunts. He lives in the jungle. No shortage of creatures for him to prey upon. And yet, sometimes there are hungry lions roaming the desert. They can't find the food. They have all the wherewithal, all the ability, and their sustenance is withheld. And yet... Nowhere is there a verse that says there are hungry birds. I think that's a movie or a video game or something. But <laughs> in the scripture, no hungry birds. We don't hear about hungry fish. Do you ever see a starving fish? I saw a picture of a starving lion. I never saw a picture of a hungry. Do you ever see fishermen who pull a fish out of the water and it's like emaciated? You know, like his rib cage is showing? I don't, I don't know if there's such a thing. There are fish that are fatty fish and fish that are lean fish, but fish are fish. They all seem supple. They all seem well-fed. You ever see birds dying of hunger? We don't hear of things like that. The ants, they don't die of hunger. They figure it out. True, the queen ant in some colonies reproduces herself asexually and then eats her reproductions, but the ants figure it out. But each of these creatures doesn't eat to the point of unhealthiness. They, they have exactly what they need to survive. We are living in a strange time in history. In a way, it's a wonderful time. There's never been so much luxury. There's never been so much plentitude. There's never been so much available in such copious amounts for everybody. It's been said that we are living in the time, the first time in history that we know of, where there's more people who die from overreading than people who die from starvation. Starvation was unfortunately at once a basic part of reality. There were famines. They were hungers. We hardly know of things like this today. True, there are some hungry people, maybe on the African continent or elsewhere, and there are lots of kind people who are helping them. In some ways, we live in a kinder and gentler world than ever before. The Rebbe used to call the United States government a malchus shel chesed, a kingdom of kindness. Our country, Canada, exports an enormous amount of foreign aid. Some of it is not wise, but much of it is downright kind. So we're engaged in helping others and assisting others. There are more people dying today from overeating than undereating. In fact, many of the people who eat less or even feel hunger are healthier than the people who eat beyond the point of saturation, which is typical in today's society. 
Obesity is at an all-time high. Heart disease, diabetes, stroke. Many of these things are caused not only by stress, but by obesity. And people eat unhealthy things. They don't eat because they're hungry. They eat because they want to pleasure themselves. My dear friends, Hashem did not take it upon Himself to kill you with too much food. That's your decision. Hashem promises to sustain all life. Not to kill it with abundance, to sustain all life. So there's a logic, there's a symmetry, there's a system to creation. Hashem creates a world in which He enables everything to find the sustenance it needs. If you had to predict that there would be hungry animals or animals lacking food, and I gave you a multiple choice, an embryo, a bird, an ant, a fish, or a lion. If we hadn't spent the last hour together, who would you think would go hungry? I would choose the lion last. Because intuitively, the lion has the ability to sustain itself. Whereas the other animals don't have that same aggressive hunt ability. The, animal, the animals don't live in their habitat or seem to be very weak. The bird has to fly out of his natural habitat, out of the sky to seek food. The fish has to somehow seek out. He's not living at the table. But the lion? He's got his hunt. He's got it all together. Whatever he needs, he can do. And yet, of all the creatures, you're going to be intersecting the camera. You just walked in front of the camera. Now you did it again. Thank you. It's right there. And this, my dear friends, is the point that Rabbi Nebuchai is making. The lions are hungry. But of all the creatures mentioned, they have the easiest way to find food. So clearly, sustenance is not the byproduct of wherewithal or ability or strength or might. But rather, Rabbi Nebuchai makes his point trying to teach us that sustenance comes from HaKadosh Baruch Hu. The very verse that speaks about the hungry lions finishes off by telling us, Hashem, those who seek God, they won't be missing any goodness. In other words, that which is needed, that which is needed. The Ibn Ezra interprets the words, Darsha Hashem, those who seek God, he says, This is talking about people who possess betochen. They trust in Hashem. So they do their work, but they know that their work or efforts or valor are not necessarily going to produce the results. They seek out their sustenance from Hashem. If you have betochen, you will never go hungry. You will never starve. You will always somehow find that which you need. 
And we're going to emphasize that notion of that which you need. I want to share with you the words of the Alshech on this idea of Der Hashem Liach Suruchotev. Rabbeinu Moshe Alshech, in his commentary on Tehillim Reimim Eskel, he says, the young lions who do as they were, as they would, or as they will, in order to find their proverbial bread, their sustenance. They are roaring, if you will, yelling for their food. Levakish, to seek out their food. But the Dersh Hashem, those who seek out God, they're not seeking food. They're not saying, oh, God is the boss. He's breaders, he butters my bread or provides me with my bread. I better be on good terms with God. No, no, no. al says this means, These are people who live with a sense of meaning. People who live with a sense of purpose. So if you're a mevakish Hashem, if you know why you're living, then you're able to be sustained. That you live with a dovik boy to cleave on to Hashem. You won't be missing the goodness that you need. You know, Viktor Frankl pioneers this idea in his famous book, Man's Search for Meaning that people don't just need biological needs to be met. They need to have purpose in life. If you understand that your mission and purpose in life is to seek out Hashem, Hashem promises, As Rabbeinu Moshe puts it, he says, here's how it goes. Atem asu you do your part. That includes going to work. It includes being gainfully employed. It includes doing all the things that are necessary to be able to make a living. But that's not what life's about. Your vocation is a thing you do because Torah says you must have a vocation. Torah says you must make the efforts to make a living. So you did your part. No anxiety though. What if my business fails? What if my vocation dries up? I'm doing my part. The who? Yeah, says Shaloi. He'll do his part. As long as I did my part, I can live with a perfect conscience and with no anxiety because I'm sure Hashem will provide for me. Kitiru b'chush, you can see this, says Rabbeinu Moshe, in machzer In the end, those who revere Hashem will find the basics. They'll have, there won't be a lack. Now, are they going to have the lifestyle that they're imagining? It doesn't say that. The human beings need to have two weeks in Bermuda, sitting on the beach. It doesn't say that. We need to have Shabbat. Hashem says, I'll provide for you for Shabbos Kodesh. We need to have Yom Tif. I'll provide for you for Yom Tif. Do you need to go to a five-star hotel for Pesach? doesn't say that. You can? Okay, knock yourself out. doesn't say you have to. Hashem doesn't make that promise. And if Hashem is kind to you, that's your decision, if that's the wisest way to spend 
the money that Hashem gave you. But Hashem does promise us He'll provide. He created a placenta that nourishes the fetus. He put enough yolk in the egg to feed the embryo. Somehow the bird living in thin air can find the sustenance as can the fish and the ants can sustain themselves and become the most successful species that we know of today. Hashem will sustain you too. Because in the end, it has nothing to do with strength. It has nothing to do with might. It's nothing to do with wherewithal. Our efforts are merely a vessel. The blessing comes from the Almighty. So what are you worried about? What are you afraid of? What's the cause for anxiety? Maybe what? Maybe you'll starve. Seek out God. You're not going to be missing. Rabbeinu Bechaya goes further now. And he says, and take a look, he says, in the book of Proverbs, where in the 10th chapter, Shlomo HaMelech in his wisdom says, Hashem nefesh tzadik. Hashem will not starve the soul of the righteous one. Ah, Loyarev Hashem nefesh tzadik. So he says, like the Nedeb HaKadosh says, you know, you look at the lions. Hashem withholds his sustenance. The lions can starve. Lions have been known to starve to death. Even though it's the king of the jungle, the strongest of the animals, the mightiest of the animals. And he says, this is because, ultimately, HaKadosh Baruch Hu promises that he will provide for the tzaddik. So the tzaddik's never going to starve. Well, you take a look at Mishlei, and there it says very clearly, God doesn't starve the soul of the righteous. Ibn Ezra says, At a time when people are starving, Hashem is not going to starve you. So, what am I going to worry about? Hashem is not going to starve me. As Mitsudas David says, Hashem provides that which you need. I didn't say luxury. Most of the things people need in today's day and age aren't really required. They're false needs. They're pseudo-needs. They're needs we created. Oh, and by the way, they don't necessarily make us any happier for it. We'd be far happier, happier with simpler lives. We don't need all the shtick. We don't need all the bells and whistles. So many of the things we want, we really don't need. So if a person is to live with betochen, amongst other things, it also helps us to kind of recalibrate our sights, how we view life, how we view the world, and our readiness to live with what we need instead of endlessly look for the things that we want. What, what do we need? We need basics. What should we look for? Hashem. We should look for something lofty or look for something higher. You know, I, I noticed something fascinating when I, was, uh, when I was researching that verse. I came across a statement in the Yalkut Shimoni, and I want to I share it with you. 
because it has, it has personal meaning, but it has really also a larger message for us as Am Yisrael. The Alka Chimoni says, and this is uh, found in the collection of teachings, of our sages' teachings on the book of Mishlei. It's entry number 545. So he says like this, nefesh tzaddik. Hashem will not starve the life out of a tzaddik. That's Yitzchak. How do we know this? Because Yitzchak experienced an economic collapse and a famine. And he planted his field with a lofty purpose to give tzedakah. He was Dersha Hashem. He wanted to do good things. And he even kind of made a calculation of what the yield would probably be so he would know what kind of tzedakah or charity commitments to make. There are different interpretations. He found at least a hundred times what he had expected. So the Yalka Chimoni links this verse to Yitzchak. And I want to share something with you because, because it also speaks to the notion. That's a bad word, notion. Notion is fanciful. It speaks to the idea, to the concept of Jewish eternity. There's a, a speech that the Rebbe delivered at a bar mitzvah in the year 1942. Across the ocean in Europe, 1941, actually. Tavshim Beis. Shabbos Beis. So across the ocean, there's rivers of blood, rivers of Jewish blood flowing. This is, this is in the time where most of Polish Jewry has already been ghettoized. Many have died of starvation. Lithuanian Jewry has been massacred by this time. It's an awful time. And this is, you know, the kind of reality which we, we can't wrap our heads around. It doesn't fit into the whole Weltanschauung of Torah and mitzvahs. It's off the charts. A Nisoyan, a test. We can't understand it. It's almost like all the variables are off when you have a reality like this. And in the midst of this, the Rebbe has just barely escaped war-torn Europe. And he's speaking to a bar mitzvah boy. He talks about his name. His name is Shmuel Pinchas. The Rebbe interprets, finds something meaningful and inspirational from the name Shmuel, from the name Pinchas. And then he says, and we found this in the notes that were discovered posthumously after the Rebbe's terrestrial passing in his, in his desk. They found these notebooks, notes that he had kept for himself. He says that the first bar mitzvah, at least according to one opinion in the Medrash, was biyom shenigomal Yitzchak, the day Yitzchak was weaned, which is a verse that's found in Genesis chapter 14, verse 13. But according to the Medrash, Rabbah, weaned does not mean a celebration of the end of breastfeeding, but means weaned from the evil inclination and now introduced to the good inclination. Nigmal meyetzer hara liyetzer tov. And it says, Avram make a great meal, mishta gadol. And the Rebbe says that that bar mitzvah is our response to what the world says about the Jewish people. 
and our statistical chances for survival. We are Hama'at, the smallest of nations. Smallest of nations in might, the smallest of nations in numbers. From all the nations. So it's stated in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7. Moshe Rabbeinu prophetically predicts the way things will be, and it's always been that way. How will, how will Israel rise? How will Israel ever recover? As the prophet Amos says, for we are so puny, so small. And the Rebbe records the teaching of our sages that a very mighty man attended that bar mitzvah. His name was Og. He was the monarch, the king of Bashan. At the time, he wasn't monarch there, but he was a mighty, mighty man, powerful person. He attends the bar mitzvah, the world's first bar mitzvah. And he says, that's what Abraham's proud of? That little, that little wimpy kid? He said, I could crush him with one finger. That's the Medrash's expression. With one finger, I could crush that kid. And the heavenly voice says, in the end, you will be delivered over to his children. And of course, Moshe Rabbeinu, as documented in the Parsha two weeks ago, slays Og and his mighty armies. The Medrash says, Og said, Ein yohi vano I could place if I were but to place my finger on him, he'd crush him. HaKadosh Baruch Hu said, Chayecho, Sha'at, Raya elef alafim v'ribir evavas, you will see the mighty nations, you will see the hundreds of thousands, the myriads, the millions, descended from him, and in the end, Lipa l'ata b'yadeh, you will see, you will fall, in the hand of the man who will lead them. And I guess the message, I think to me, is this. You know, in the beginning of this series, of this episode, I talked about something that Rambam, Maimonides, says in Mor Nevuchim. He says, all of these ideas about the Jewish people being sustained by otherworldly forces and powers and abilities and how we defy statistics and how our, our, our very existence is not reflective of rhyme and reason, that this is not just something about the nation, but it's actually something that applies to every one of us as individuals. So Rabbeinu Bechaya says, Layarav Hashem, the hungry lions, the lions may go hungry, but the tzaddik will never hunger. And then he finishes off with another quote, a final quote from the book of Tehillim. This is found in Psalm 37, verse 25, Nar Hayisi. Gamza Kanti, I was young and I've become older. But I never saw a righteous person abandoned. Vizaroi, and his seed, his progeny, Mavakesh, Lochem, seeking out bread. 
There's a beer, an explanation from the Tzemach Tzedek on the Pasuk, Nara Yisi Gamza Kanti, from a mystical perspective, and he identifies various levels in the spiritual schematic. And he says that the truth of Torah is applicable from the level of Na'ar to Zokin, because the truth doesn't change. This is not a perception, a perception of immaturity or a perception that reflects the experience of old age. It's a truism. Not our easy. Gamzakanti. I was young. I got older. Our perspectives change. And yet, this is a truism that remains in place. It's a beautiful beer, an explanation from the Rebbe on this. One of the Rebbe's my mother, and the Rebbe explains this idea. He talks about the various levels and what they represent, and how each level, each spiritual level with its own celestial creatures or existence has its vantage point. And then there's a certain truism which is found in all worlds. And in all worlds, there's a truism that Hashem sustains the righteous. That's the message. So, Nara Yisi Gamzakanti, Lord Yisi Tzadik Nezef. And here, my friends, I want to share with you the words of David HaMelech. Those words, Lere'isi Tzadik Nezav, Ibn Ezra says, Legamri. Never entirely abandoned. Righteous will be neglected. The righteous sometimes will seem abandoned, but it is never absolute. As Hashem told Father Jacob, who had some very difficult times, Lo'i I will not abandon you. What did he ask for? He asked, Lechem v'simla. Basics. He asked for food and he asked for clothes. He didn't ask for anything fancy. Just basics. As Radak puts it, Nezov? Nezov means lechem v'simla, that he actually is missing bread or is naked and doesn't have clothes to wear. So that's the kind of thing we're talking about when we refer to Betochen. It may not be the lifestyle that we like or got used to. But is that what life's really about? I think it's reasonable to say that whatever is considered to be a decent lifestyle will be provided for us. We have to make our efforts. We have to do our part. And what's considered to be a median, decent lifestyle is assured. And if that's assured, why be nervous? Worried? Why have anxiety? Have anxiety over riches so you can be happy? So you'll be anxious, nervous, worried, concerned, and consumed by stress now so you can have the riches later so that you can pay for the doctor bills that the stress caused? We need that for. Just relax. Do your part. Trust in Hashem. And remember, life's not about the bells and whistles, about material luxury and plenty, about fame and fortune and fun. Life's about the things that are really satisfying and meaningful. Life's about mission. Life's about purpose. Life's about spiritual fulfillment. Life's about family. Life's about your social circle and true friends. And this, with Hashem's help, as long as we do our part and have the right betochen, we will never be missing. Very interestingly, in the Sefer Megala Amukais, on the words of the Isi Tzadik Nezav, he says, 
Hashem promises that ha'adam will be mistaken. If a person, he says, im hoya ha'adam mistapik, if only a person could be satisfied. Belechem tsar, with enough bread. Mayim lachatz, small measure of water. La'olam le'hoya mechusim b'zeinus. Then people would be missing nothing ever. The reason we're missing, the reason we're lacking, is because we have these unreasonable expectations. Because, because we look at life and want more materialism, which we can't take with us. Instead of focusing on the spiritual wealth and affluence, the only thing that actually stays with us forever. In teragel says the Megala Amukes, if you will only accustom yourself, that if you will eat, so to speak, your bread upon the waters, as in the course of due time, you'll find it. You will find what you need on a daily basis. Your needs will be met. Because Almighty God provides sustenance for all flesh, ki la'olam chastri, for his kindness is eternal. And that, my dear friends, is what I want to share with you, to help us understand and appreciate this little detail, this part of Rabbeinu B'chayi's Shara B'tochen. The Pas Lechem interestingly says that the reason we bring this final verse is because it has the words Vizari Mavakash Lochem. And he says, This is Laraya, this proves to us. Shaloi not only the righteous person, not only will you be sustained if you have Betochen, that he should be Batuach certain in Hasmanas Tarpe in the needs of his sustenance, but that his schus, that his merit, Yamid Bem Schusilazare Achrav. A person with Betochen is able to bring the needed and necessary blessings, the requisite sustenance, not only for themselves, but also for their family. As the Rebbe once wrote in a handwritten note, more bitochen, he wrote in English, equals, made an equal sign, more parnosa. More bitochen, more parnosa. The more we trust in Hashem, the more we do our part, do it without worry or anxiety. And the more we rely on Hashem Yisbarach, the larger the volume of our spiritual download, the greater our ability to receive Hashem's blessings. And ultimately, we, as a result, are able to find the sense of fulfillment and true happiness. And that's what everybody wants. It's not nearly as hard as people think it to be. With Betochen and Hashem, we can be rid of worries, and we can live a life of true fulfillment and true happiness. And of course, this all hastens the arrival of Mashiach, a time in which none of us will have to worry about anything. Because when Mashiach comes, everything will be found in such abundance we won't even want it. May we merit that great day speedily and in our time.
will be Amenu. Amen. Thanks for joining.